Do you think we're going to find out with Trump's Twitter feed that at some point he, he really is a genius and he's doing a satire Twitter feed himself? Do you think he's going to he's going to come out at some point? I think that that's the million dollar question that is at the heart of a lot of satirical work, which is, are you making fun of someone who's evil or stupid? <laughs> and, you know, right? Sometimes it's really hard to tell. I think the truth of the matter in the case of the, at least the, the current administration, is that it's a pretty potent combination. This is the Mideast Big Beast podcast, and I'm Alex Giles, the editor of the Mideast Beast. Today I'm very pleased to invite my special guest, the world's leading expert on satire, and someone who literally wrote the book on the subject, Professor Sophia McLennan. Professor McLennan is the Associate Director of the School of International Affairs, Director of the Centre for Global Studies, and Professor of International Affairs and Comparative Literature at the Pennsylvania State University, or Penn State, as everyone knows it. As uh, I was just discussing before we went on air, I'm a Chapel Hill man myself, so things could get difficult later if we start talking about basketball. Professor, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I greatly appreciate it. You are the world's leading expert on satire? Is that, is that the best way to describe you? Well, it could be said, although those things are always well argued, right? Um, so, so I'm willing to make a go of it. But you have literally written the book on it, haven't you? Your book, The Revolution Will Be Satirized, which I've read, I thoroughly enjoyed. And is satire saving our nation, mockery in American politics? Well, I think, as you know, right, satire comes in many different forms. And the particular form of satire that I'm most well-versed on is the satire that we had at the turn of the millennium uh, in the United States, especially marked by the events of 9-11. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my work is on the type of satire that emerged in, you know, television and social media. And so, for instance, if you're listeners are interested in people who work on, say, satirical novels, that is not the field that I'm working in the most. So in all fairness, it's a big field. There's a lot to do. There is. And how would you, now we're a satire website. I hope that our our readers understand satire. I suspect sometimes from some of the comments we get, not all of them do. And I wanted to chat to you about about that in a moment. But how do you categorize satire? What is the, 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 the elevator pitch if I said I'm a satirist? Well, I think the most important part of satire is irony. Mm -hmm. And so what makes satire a unique form of comedy is that it requires the audience to be able to process the space between what's said and what's meant. And so that's a very beautiful thing to just encourage people to think critically. So again, if we were talking earlier about the weather here. If you were here, um, you might say to me, how's the weather? And I'd say, it's great. <laughs> and you would know that when I said it's great, I didn't mean it's great because the sun isn't out and it's kind of cold. That's an example of sarcasm, right? Yep. Um, it's not full-blown satire. But what's at heart there is that the words I said 
were not what I meant. Mm -hmm. And satire really lives in that space. And the reason why it becomes the most effective form of comedy to critique the status quo, to critique abuses of power, to critique human folly is because it does it with irony. And irony Mm -hmm. is, you know, a highly sophisticated form of communication. Whereas, you know, you could... You could say, how's the weather? And I could just cuss. (laughs) Or I could, you know, I could make some sort of off-the-cuff comment that was a little more brash, right? Sure, sure. But the difference is, you know, we sort of like to draw a distinction between mockery and satire. So, for instance, if you wanted to make fun of the President of the United States, you could make fun, hypothetically, (laughs) you could make fun, hypothetically, of the fact that his face looks orange. Mm -hmm. And that would be funny, but that's not satire. Right. So if you want to use satire to make fun of the president of the United States, you would use satire to show that his arguments lack logic. Right. Or that he's a blustering fool. But you would do it with irony as opposed to just saying, wow, look at this person. He's just a gas bag. Right. So the beauty of the irony and satire is that it encourages critical thinking in the audience. And as I like to say, it doesn't tell you what to think. It tells you to think. Yeah, no, I can appreciate that. Do you think we're going to find out with Trump's Twitter feed that at some point he, he really is a genius and he's doing a satire Twitter feed himself? Do you think he's going, to, he's going to come out at some point? I think that that's the million dollar question that is at the heart of a lot of satirical work, which is, are you making fun of someone who's evil or stupid? (laughs) And, you know, right? Sometimes it's really hard to tell. I think the truth of the matter in the case of the, at least the the current administration, is that it's a pretty potent combination, to be frank. Yes, yes. I I refuse the binary between, does he know what he's doing? Does he not know what he's doing? He's doing I like to say he sometimes really does know what he's doing yep. and he's really effective at it and mm-hmm. if you ignore that then you're ignoring it's so convenient to just sort of chalk him off as somebody who can't even construct a grammatically correct sentence but you're making a big mistake if you just write him off he is president sure I read somewhere it's a bit of a tangent like everyone I'm sure you've received those emails where it's uh, allegedly from a Nigerian prince or someone, you know, saying you've inherited millions and millions of pounds, yeah? And, uh, I haven't had one in a while. You haven't had one for a while. Yeah. I read, so, so you get those, and of course, like, you know, you, you, you delete it and you laugh at it. But I read somewhere that the very sophisticated fraudsters that send those, they're not sending them to someone like yourself. They're obviously sending millions of these things out. And there is a subset of people who, to put it bluntly, due to racism and a certain level of stupidity, assume that's how an African person would speak that ridiculous language and therefore to them it seems absolutely plausible which is why a tiny percentage of people continue to get fooled by that and I always wonder when I read Donald Trump's tweets and I confess I read them every day I'm hooked on it and I read it and I think my god he can't string a sentence together but to a lot of his fan base that seems like straight talking that's how you would talk to each other when he refers to a typhoon being very very wet for the amount of rain or something which, you know, we, we laugh at, actually, that seems perfectly normal to people. Well, I think that's true. I think, though, that, I mean, in this case, you're sort of, the conversation here really has to do with the longstanding 
U.S. anxiety about expertise and intellect Mm -hmm. and sort of the narrative that is not, I mean, has really been in place in the U.S. since, you know, the revolution, which was that they were tired of these snobby, smarty pants British people. Thank you. We were were tired of you too. (laughs) So, So that part of the story of sort of the founding of the United States and the kind of legacy, it's really complex, right? Mm -hmm. I talk about that in Satire Saving Our Nation a bit, this sort of embrace of stupidity as common, which we really saw with the George W. Bush administration. Because remember, this man had the nuclear codes, but said the word nuclear. (laughs) And to me, that that was sort of frightening cognitive dissonance. So we have this issue and one could really spend quite a bit of time talking about how the United States has made a lot of hay over coming after experts yes, and, and not liking them for really, it's mind boggling, right? That you, you don't want experts. There's something suspicious <laughs> about them. I mean, I do think in the land of satire, that's where satire has stepped in in US culture because the satirists are so extraordinarily bright. We have really good research that shows that people who consume satire also are more intelligent, right? They have higher cognitive functioning than people who don't. Mm-hmm. That we can prove without any question. And we can also prove that some of the people who have difficulty processing irony may well simply not be that bright. That There's a lot of information on that front too. That leads me to a question that we grapple with on the website. We try to move away from fake news. We're trying, to obviously, to satirise a piece of news. But it's very clear, particularly when we have very popular articles that start going a little bit viral, there's a clear percentage of people that don't get the joke. And in our world, we begin to feel that could be a little bit dangerous because we're writing about Israel, you know, writing about Jews. Uh, we're writing about the Gaza Strip and, and Palestine and very emotive issues. And we always feel there's this real danger that actually, are we actually doing good or doing bad? Because obviously there are, are the people we want to be reading it, enjoying it, realise the joke and the point we're trying to make. But there's always a percentage that don't. Where, where is that line? Well, I think one thing that you're describing there, this is a consistent problem that satire has to face, right? Whether mm. that risk is worth it. One of the things that I found fascinating about the 2016 election in the United States was that the most viral so-called fake news story was a story that said Pope Francis endorses Trump. Yep, yep. Now, that was not satire. That was just simply a hoax. (laughs) And, and, you know, right, so there's, you know, layers of types of fake news, one of which is just like, let's write something outrageous and see if stupid people will share it. And that was that kind of piece. But I can tell you that when I saw that headline, I laughed because (laughs) I thought it could be the onion. Right. So that line is not fixable. And in fact, I've had some conversations with Facebook to talk to them about what will they do in these cases? It's not going to be simple. Would you take that down or not? And, and, and you would want to take it down if it's hoax news, and you wouldn't want to take it down if it was coming from The Onion. So how do you do that, and then mm-hmm. what do you do about the fact that it could be from The Onion, but then somebody reads it takes it literally? So in my view, the big challenge we face in this landscape where so much fake news can circulate so quickly and so powerfully is that we still need to insist on media literacy and critical media skills, which you cannot 
develop if you're never faced with satire, right? Satire mm-hmm. is, is asking you to recognize that you're not reading the words in a literal way. I think all of us fall for it, right? So yep. I still remember there used to be a, an outlet in the U.S. called the Daily Current, which actually got hammered so badly because people kept taking it seriously that it died out. But they had a piece that they did during the election cycle when Sarah Palin was the running mate for uh, John McCain. And Mm -hmm. it said something like, Sarah Palin says we should ship all Mexican immigrants home (laughs) or something, right? Um, Meaning that one would have to put them on a boat to get them home, (laughs) which was, I thought, really possible like when i first saw the headline i simply thought she could have said that because remember she used to say some pretty crazy things about seeing russia from her house blah 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 she seems quite reasonable now to be fair i mean when we look back uh, on those days and i'm thinking maybe that can't have been that bad well arguably you could say the other thing which is that she paved she normalized it made this anyway but the point that i'm trying to make is that i'm a scar or satire. I saw that headline. I did not think it was a joke. I thought it was real. <laughs> and so if I can fall for a joke and, and mistake it, yep. then anybody can, which I actually think is the beauty of satire, because then I think, oh, wow, how did I fall for that? Why wasn't I reading it a little more carefully? Yep. I need to do a better job. And that's really where what we're talking about, right? We need our readers to want to be the smartest and most analytical they can be and not sort of triggered by anything they see. And if we don't expose them the satire, they simply won't learn how to do it. That is the challenge, isn't it? And I struggle with it because there's a little bit of sitting in an ivory tower, isn't there? That we're, you know, we're clever, you're, you're highly educated, you're a professor, I'm, I'm modestly educated. And we can get it, though we are caught out sometimes. But can you move people, do you think? How do you educate to bring some of those people into the circle? Aren't we in danger of looking down or appearing to look down on those people? These are perfect questions, right? So first of all, no, there's nothing you can do about people who are so completely stupid that they don't get irony. Like it's generally (laughs) at some point too late, right? Um, And that is a tragedy, but it isn't a tragedy that you and I can spend a heck of a lot of time worrying about because the facts are the facts about that. If you're not exposed to irony and to other forms of critical thinking that encourage the brain to embrace nuance Mm -hmm. and reject binaries and polarizing concepts at some point it's locked in and it's pretty hard to fix and there's a ton of research that supports this so one of the things that i think has been a tremendous mistake as we look at this polarized world is all of the hand-wringing on the part of the you know, I don't know if we want to say liberals or left or mm-hmm. however you might, where they think, oh, no, we need to help. We need to help those people think better. And I'm like, no, no. What you need to do is remind the people, clever people, to stay clever and to not <laughs> get up, right? Not give up. And you need to help them help their kids stay clever. And that's our challenge. I mean, there's, uh, again, uh, tons and tons of research about what we call motivated reasoning, where people say, take information that should correct a false belief, but refuse to take it seriously Mm -hmm. because they don't want to give the evidence is in on this. You're wasting your time. 
Okay. If you're talking to someone who doesn't think we have climate change, mm-hmm. you need to just walk away. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's over. Like, it's not fixable with them. You just fo- you want to focus on the people who are, who are trying to, you know, for instance, in the United States, let me give you an example. We had about 66 million people voted for Hillary Clinton, about 63 million voted for Donald Trump, even though he won, right? Yep, That's yep, weird. A yep. hundred million people didn't vote. <laughs> Those are the people. Forget the 63 million that voted for Trump. They're just done. There's no reason to do it. Okay, so we have research on that. But the other part of it that you were sort of asking about with this kind of the cognitive work, mm. you know, this is significant to us to figure out this issue of do I have to feel like I'm being elitist because I understand math? I mean, (laughs) do I have to feel like I'm being elitist because I think you should have a subject and a verb in a sentence? I mean, we really have to ask ourselves, where's the line here? And stop hand-wringing over feeling like we're being superior. And then there's one other piece to this, which is really important. And that is that in comedy, right, to all sorts of types of comedy, right? So I could do a type of comedy that would be self-deprecating. And I often do that. And that's a very good way to ice break, right? So I make fun of myself and then you like me and we get along and it's nice. Are you sure you're not British, Sophia? Is there any British in you? Because that sounds like very British. Well, I am Scottish and English. Oh, that explains it. So there you go. (laughs) But the other side of it is that I could make a joke about human beings being idiots, right? We love those jokes, right? Like, look at that. I can't help myself. The folly of human life. We can all sort of have a chuckle over that, and that's really nice. But satire as a form of comedy is what we call boundary heightening comedy, period. It means that. That when you make a satirical joke, you have the it getters, the people in on the joke, mm-hmm. and you have the butt of the joke. And there is no way for satire to function without that. Period. It always is a socially divisive form of comedy. It is it can't be any other way and be satire. Now, the folks that worry about that and, and you know, uh, there are perfect they're really good examples. There are examples of satirists who have lost their lives, like in Charlie Hebdo, where the boundary heightening of the satire got so high that Mm -hmm. it led to violence. So there's some serious things to consider here. But the other side of it is that that is the type of comedy that lives in the land of critical thinking. Mm -hmm. So with that great reward also comes the risks that you remind the people again, right, if I make a joke about climate science, the people who don't believe in it will feel insulted that's just going to happen and so there can be some significant costs to that because then they felt insulted which means they're going to be even more mobilized to have their false belief etc etc the other side of it though is that when i motivate the it getters the people who understand the joke Mm -hmm. i now have a powerful force But this is the point, whether it's political satire or not, right? Satire definitely is one of those things that divides us. But for the people who get the joke, it also energizes them to fight for, you know, change, for Mm -hmm. things to get better, to, you know, no more abuses and social injustices, all those kinds of things. You gave me a lovely intro into my last question for you because you mentioned Charlie Hebdo and... 
satire seems easier, clearly, in a liberal democracy. We have free speech, you can stand in a soapbox and say what you like about, about the leadership. That's clearly a lot more challenging in the areas that we write about, the, you know, the, the Middle East, and, and people like Charlie Hebdo paid the ultimate price for writing about that and the, the people on the Danish you know, newspapers, the cartoons. And you wrote in an article very recently, I think it was in Slate, you wrote, the angrier the satire, the better. And I just wanted to finish by, we'll just ask you, what are the challenges of doing satire in a place which isn't a liberal democracy? And I, and I know finally you, you have met and you've interviewed Basim Youssef, who people call the, you know, the lead Egyptian satirist. And I wonder whether you could just comment on that. I think you're right at one level, uh, clearly, without any question, that where you're doing your satire matters. Your listeners may be interested to kind of look this up. There's certainly a lot of people imprisoned, especially cartoonists. They seem to get the really full weight of this. Mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia has just recently passed a law that if you even share a tweet that seems to be mocking religion, you could go to prison and have a fine that's something like 800,000 pounds. I mean, it's outrageous. So we saw the Chinese government, I think about four years ago, banned puns. Uh, again, pun being sort of like the chewing gum of satire <laughs> like we need it it's fun and and it's such an essential part of the game mm -hmm. uh so we have lots of cases right of, of some severe crackdowns the story of Bassem Youssef he had to flee Egypt effectively because he could no longer conduct his life mm -hmm. there in safety so there's no question that where you're doing your satire matters I do think in the broader spectrum, because of the way social media works, it will increasingly be true that satire will come into spaces where, you know, governments are trying really hard to keep it out. Mm -hmm. um, and that process is going to continue. And we know that it does, in fact, enter into, say, sort of the national dialogue in countries where that are trying to limit it. I've been really interested about sort of satire that's anti extremist that comes from within the Arab-speaking world, because in the wake of Charlie Hebdo, a lot of folks didn't realize that there was a perfectly robust satirical community yep. in Iraq, let's say, in yep. Palestine, in Jordan. They didn't know that. But what they don't do, of course, is they don't represent the Prophet Muhammad in their jokes because that they're not doing that. So there are some interesting facets of it in terms of what is considered acceptable and what isn't. I think the other part of the story that's really important to bear in mind is that satire is the one type of comedy that truly has existed in every single culture across every single moment in human history. And it emerges in great force when people feel some sense of crisis, right? When there's a despotism, authoritarianism, a repression of you know, expression. When that happens, satire emerges. And it emerges in part because of irony, right? Think about the court jester who could say something to the king and mm -hmm. get away with it. Mm -hmm. And the reason why was because it was being said, with sarcasm and irony. And so this has always been historically true where people would try to hide behind saying, well, I didn't say that. I didn't say we should overthrow <laughs> you. I'd say we'd be crazy to overthrow you. <laughs> right? So that's how people get away with it. Right? So again, irony is, is the most sort of fundamental feature of resistance when you're dealing with political repression. 
And that's why you find it everywhere. And so, you know, the versions and the forms are fun to study because they're fascinating. But, you know, as much as, as Saudi Arabia wants to legislate this, it, it's always very interesting to see how, how the laws are implemented. Mm -hmm. We could talk about this for ages, but you are very, very busy. And I'm immensely grateful for you taking the time to speak to me and talk about this. Absolutely fascinating. So my great thanks for you taking the time. Uh, Professor Sophia McKellen, she has written the book on satire. She is the expert. When we post this up on our website, we'll put some links to the great work that she's done on this so people can take a, a further look. So thank you very much, uh, Professor. Really appreciate your time. Get back to that slightly grey, almost English weather that I understand you're enjoying. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Well, that does it for this week's Mideast Big Beast podcast. Make sure you check out the Mideast Beast at themideastbeast.com. Like us on Facebook at the Mideast Beast. Follow us on Twitter at Mideast Beasties. And on Instagram at the Real Mideast Beast. As always, thanks to our producer, Scott Kahn, and all of our listeners for your feedback. That's it for now. See you next time on the next The Mideast Big Beast podcast.